0: Hi, it's Michael Smirconish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirconish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session ladies and gentlemen america's best loved historian david mccullough the very week that 1776 has come out what a privilege to have you here thanks so much thank you michael very much i'm delighted to be here dapper fella you are by the way i wish we were doing television this morning instead of radio who dresses you (laughs) thank
1: you paul stewart
0: (laughs) you know isn't it the greatest chicago and new york city a wonderful
1: place I've, i've had the same salesman the same store. I buy the same things over and over again for 40 years.
0: I was in New York City yesterday guest hosting O'Reilly's radio program, and I, I started to tell David McCullough this story during the break. I took 1776 out to dinner. I was eating alone the night before. Two different people stopped at the table to say to me, you're reading the new McCullough book. How do you like 1776? I said, I love it. And one guy was so funny. He said, good, because you look normal, and I didn't want to take the New York Times word for
1: it.
0: <laughs> Isn't that a great line?
1: Well, it was a little worrisome because the New York Times review was very good. Yeah, so. there was. <laughs>
0: it was good. Uh, you're the cover of Newsweek as well. I mean, how exciting that you're here in the cover. The real George Washington, David McCullough, On the man behind the miracle of 1776, I don't know where to begin. They describe in Newsweek the book as colorful, eloquent, and illuminating. Something that I didn't know, David, is, and it's so appropriate on Memorial Day, that our war for independence killed a greater percentage of Americans than any other conflict in our history except the Civil War.
1: That's right. And it was the longest war in our history except for Vietnam. Most people have no idea. It was eight and a half years long.
0: Eight and a half years. Yeah, I think we we only think that it lasted for about a year. That's right. And so much of the critical history that you write about took place right here within Stone's Throw of where we're located.
1: Well, we walk on historic ground every time we walk anywhere in Philadelphia or New York or Boston. And people tend to think that history is something that happened far away and long ago, but... It's right here. It was right
0: here. You were in the midst of, of writing what would become the immensely successful uh, John Adams uh, biography, and, and that's when you decided, hey, I've, I've got to take a detour and, and come back and write more about this subject? Yes,
1: because uh, with biography, you have to stay very close to your subject. You can't go off and tell about something that's happening off stage, so to speak. And I was very uh, enthralled and uh, amazed by what was going on, particularly during the Battle of Brooklyn and the, um, the almost miraculous escape from Brooklyn that saved the saved the Continental Army in Washington. The Dun- it was the Dunkirk of the Revolution. But I couldn't tell that story because Adams wasn't there. He was here in Philadelphia. And I realized, as I am sure many do, that if it weren't for those people who were fighting the war, the Declaration of Independence would have meant nothing. It would have been just words on paper. It would have been what, what it was called, a declaration. So that when we celebrate 1776, when we celebrate the Fourth of July, we shouldn't just have in mind the drama that was going on in Independence Hall. We should be thinking about those men who were out there facing uh, the greatest, most powerful army in the world um, with leadership that was sort of going through on-the-job training. Uh, Washington had never commanded an army in battle in his life before that battle, and um, learning by experience, many of them quitting, giving up, going home, deserting, some going over to the enemy. But there was that um, persevering uh, f- few who kept going no matter what. And at one point between New York and Philadelphia, as Washington was retreating across New Jersey, they were down to all of 3,000 men, many of whom were quite sick, all of whom were hungry, most all of whom had virtually no clothing uh, for winter, and winter was coming on fast. So that the whole Glorious cause, as they called it, everything that we are, everything that we enjoy in the way of our way of life and freedoms was riding on 3,000 men and a handful of extraordinary leaders, including, of course, Washington, most prominent of all.
0: David McCullough, the Pulitzer Prize winning historian, is in the studio with me. 1776 has just hit the shelves and is destined to become the number one bestseller in the nation. Do you really write your books on a 1940 Royal typewriter? Oh, now you're touching Mike. Come writer. on,
1: yes, you're getting to me, Mike. In the new millennium, yes, I do. I am. I am happily, intentionally, way behind the
0: times. <laughs> paint the picture for me, David. If if I were in the room where you are most comfortable writing, what does it look like? About like, like this studio. I it's, hope not. <laughs> it's eight
1: eight by ten feet. I have no. There's no telephone. I have some filing cabinets. I have about 700, 800 books on shelves all around. I have window- windows on four sides. I look out on a farm that adjoins our small town lot, uh, a farm which is still in the same family, uh, which first settled there in the 17th century. It's very it's very picturesque. It's very rural. I'm in the center of Martha's Vineyard. I'm not near the water. And I pound away on a 19 19- Forty Royal Standard. What time
0: writer. of day do you are you most comfortable writing? Is there a routine that you follow?
1: Yes, every day, all I, day, every day,
0: all day, every day.
1: Yes, and I, but I don't. I'm not writing all the time. Sure. Um, people often ask me. They say, "Well, now, how much of your time is spent doing research, and how much of your time is spent which was writing? my next question, which um, uh, yeah, is a fine question, a very legitimate question, but nobody ever says how much time do you spend thinking. And, uh, that was my following question. And as uh, Catherine Drinker Bowen, a wonderful biographer from Philadelphia, famous biographer once said, it's the thinking that takes the time and should. So very, if you were to walk by my little study there and look in... You'd say my that guy's asleep in there, but I'm not asleep. I'm thinking.
0: <laughs> Do you smoke? Do you drink? Is there anything? No, you're, not, you're just not a clean, in You're clean living as I'm, you're working. i clean,
1: Monastics. monastic, <laughs> at least from nine to six o'clock.
0: David McCullough in the studio with us on the Big Talker 1210. Let's set the stage for 1776. We we've got you know the so-called madness of King George on the throne. By the way, interesting. I never knew, but frankly, never stopped to think of it. He'd never visited the colonies.
1: No, he never visited Scotland or Ireland either. Uh, that wasn't considered ne- necessary. And I, I don't think the British people would have stood for it and for their king to leave.
0: And news takes months to reach him.
1: Yes. You know, the first president to ever leave this country while in office was Theodore Roosevelt when he went down to Panama. And there was, there was t- tremendous controversy over whether that should ever be done.
0: So you've got King George on the throne, the Continental Congress sitting in Philadelphia, General George Washington leading this this band of soldiers that I guess was initially called the the Army of the United Colonies?
1: Yes. Well, it was called a multitude of things, but it was not called the Continental Army. I want to go back to, the, to King George just a second. King George is best known for two things, that he lost the American colonies and that he was crazy. He was not crazy in 1776. His... He had a disease, which in today could be counteracted, could be cured. He'd, and the, his mental uh, imbalance came much later, 20 years later. He was young. He was intelligent. He was an accomplished musician, a very good artist. He amassed the finest personal private library in the world. Uh, Samuel Johnson thought he was charming company. This was a man of, of considerable ability. His mother told him, George, be king. And he, when your mother tells you that, I suppose you do it. He felt that it was his duty to suppress the rebellion. He felt that the leaders of the rebellion here were traitors. And it's the speech that he gave in October of 1775... Which is how you open the book. ...that gave us the clue here. doesn't reach here until, amazingly, the first day of the new year, 1776 which gave us the realization that this was not going to be a short family squabble and that, in fact, it was going to be a long, trying, bloody war and that we should be fighting for our own independence. At Bunker Hill, at um, Lexington and Concord, those men were not fighting for American independence. They were fighting for their rights as freeborn Englishmen. So it's a big shift to go from that in a matter of
0: months, to independence. You bring you you uh, you start the book by talking about King George and ab- about these amazing sessions in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. I, another thing I didn't know that I learned from David McCullough: a third of of the British elected officials didn't want a part of this war. No,
1: they didn't want a part of the war. But very importantly, they still called it they called them our colonies. In other words, they weren't about to let us go Right. any more than the king was. They just wanted to bring us back in in a more accommodating way, which would
0: have worked. You write about some great characters, and this to me is, is vintage David McCullough. You're talking about Charles James Fox, uh, only 26 years old. You obviously know where I'm going. Listen, here's, here's how David McCullough describes him. Born to wealth and position, Fox was an unabashed F.O.P. fop. Describe. What are you talking about there?
1: Well, he, he wore high-heeled shoes of different colors, among other things.
0: A dandified macaroni who at times appeared in high-heeled shoes, each of a different color, and happily spent most nights drinking or gambling away his father's fortune at London's best clubs. But his intellect and oratorical gifts were second to none. He always spoke spontaneously, never from notes or a prepared text. Fox, it would be observed, would as soon write down what he was going to say as pay a bill before it came due. It's a great lie. It is. Uh, but good stuff. I mean, you talk about him. You, you, you talk about... Let me just see from my notes. I loved the discussion of Nathaniel Green. Who was Nathaniel Green? Nathaniel
1: Green is an American who, that every Mar- American ought to know about. He was a Quaker from Rhode Island, and because of a childhood injury, he limped badly. One leg was quite badly injured. He had. Uh, he, was, he was subject to asthmatic attacks. And uh, he was all of 33 years old when he was made a general. And all that he knew about the military life, about armies, strategy, tactics, was what he had read in books. But but it, what's so important to understand is that it was an age in which people had the idea that reading books was a very good way to learn things. And uh, that's the Enlightenment concept. With a close study of books, everything can be learned and understood. He... Um, he had, he had the gift. He was a great soldier, a great leader, and he would become second only to Washington uh, in his uh, hold on, on, on men, um, in, in, and in Washington's eyes, he was the one that, if anything happened to Washington, would take
0: command. All right. You just said that he was a great soldier and a great leader. Yes. Washington, clearly a great leader. That's was exactly he, what he is. Was he a great soldier?
1: He wasn't a brilliant strategist. He wasn't a brilliant, brilliant tactician. He made some brilliant moves, including the attack on Trenton most conspicuously. But no, he wasn't. And he wasn't an intellectual like Jefferson or, or Franklin or Adams. He wasn't a powerful orator like Patrick Henry. He was a leader. And he, he, he was the kind of man men would follow. And they would follow him through hell, which they did. His, um, his integrity was total. His courage was phenomenal, moral and physical courage. And maybe as important as anything, he would not quit. He would not cave. And there was every reason to believe that the war was over and we had lost much of the country, by far the majority of the country, not to say the British had come to that conclusion when it was down to 3,000 men in the Continental Army. But for
0: those 3,000, you and I would be sitting here today uh, talking about Camilla Parker Bowles.
1: Yeah, sipping tea and what else. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and eating at Wimpy's. Yeah. The great David McCullough in the studio with me. Well, one other observation before we go to break uh, about Washington. This picture emerges from 1776 of George Washington preparing on the eve of battle and worrying about the wainscoting at Mount Vernon. Well, yes. Talk about that.
1: Well, it's a strange thing. He he had the most overwhelming problems, uh, everything pressing down on him, including the prospect of imminent defeat. And uh, he would sit and write long letters about what kind of paint he wanted for the parlor and how the siding was to be handled in the kitchen and so forth. I think it was his way of keeping from uh, cracking. I think it was what kept him in balance. Churchill told Eisenhower during the war before D-Day, you've got to take up some hobby or you're going to crack. And he urged uh, Ike to uh, take up painting, which Churchill did. Churchill loved. did, yeah. And Ike did and became quite good. He wasn't as good as Churchill. But I think it, I think that uh, Washington's letters about the creative a- activities going on at home at Mount Vernon kept him in balance the way the painting did for Churchill and Eisenhower.
0: David McCullough, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, America's most beloved historian, brand-new book, 1776, cover of Newsweek, racing up the charts as we speak, in the studio with me for just a couple of more moments, and then he leaves us and he goes to the National Constitution Center. By the way, do you enjoy this? I don't mean being in my company, but I mean you know being on the road as you're, you're doing now. I, I know it's
1: odd, but I enjoy it very much. I like meeting people. I like meeting the people who read my books. I like visiting different places in the country. I I, I feel uh, renewed by it.
0: You you must you, you must feel great to know that in the internet age in which we live, you know, you're you're the uh, uh, the exception sitting there with the 1940 royal typewriter. That people want to read your books and they want to read about history and that they're enthused about what happened in 1776. That's good news. Well, I think there's a lot
1: of good news. You know, the the uh, conventional wisdom among uh, educators, for example, and uh, and publishers was that young people uh, children don't want to read books anymore that they love uh, uh, the, all the mechanical uh, electronic devices and so there was a great movement to in to uh, decrease the uh, st- the difficulty of the vocabulary to uh, make the print larger to put more pictures in everything to try to pull these uh, supposedly uh, uh, indifferent young people into reading books this this was the conventional wisdom for about 25 years. And then along came Harry Potter and blew all that Isn't right that out of the water. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the happiest days of my life was to see an eight-year-old granddaughter on a nice summer day in the morning, house full of other kids, go out into the driveway and get into the car. To sit where she would be quiet so she could read a 750-page book. <laughs> when right. I saw that, I just thought, this is one of the great moments <laughs> of my life. Uh, people will read books. Uh, they will, they want to read books if, if what's in the books is compelling.
0: David McCullough, there's an Abigail Adams quote that I think uh, so summarizes what you've captured. You know the quote that I'm referring to.
1: Yes, it's a, it's a quotation that just sort of lifted me out of my chair when I first read it in one of her letters. She said, posterity who are to reap the blessings will scarcely be able to conceive the hardships and sufferings of their ancestors. And of course, that's true. We don't understand what these people went through, not just the soldiers, but those who were at home too, those who had sent their husbands or their fathers or sons off to fight in the war. and uh, And we always have to remember that the people who are caught up in these great events of the past don't know how it's going to turn out. they can't read the future they don't know that they're necessarily going to succeed. everything uh, that one might look at rationally at, the, at several points was that they would couldn't possibly succeed and that um and that they're living in the present, not the past they're living in their present, not ours, and that they um that they are real people we see them in In productions on stage, and they're they're preening about in what looks like a costume pageant with their. It's hard to take them seriously sometimes. It's very hard to take them seriously. And we can't see them in photography, we can't hear their voices, but if we look at what they said in letters and diaries. And I, I've drawn almost all of this book from letters and diaries, over 700 diaries.
0: Speaking of, uh, of letters, one of the things that, I, again, I didn't know until I read David McCullough's new book, is that these letters, the George Washington letters to Martha Washington, she destroyed all but three, and the three that survived were because she forgot about them?
1: Yes, she apparently put them in a book uh, for some reason or other and forgot which book it was and never found them, fortunately. but And they're very important letters. Why she did this, we don't know. Uh, there's, there's, Jefferson, Jefferson did the same thing. He destroyed every letter his wife ever wrote to him, and every letter he wrote to her. We don't even know what his, what Jefferson's
0: wife looked like. Interesting, David McCullough. There, there are three minutes left. I, I want, I want you to paint the picture of uh, General Washington on the eve of the Battle of Brooklyn. General Howe is, you know, offshore. the The, the, the battle's coming, but he doesn't know when and correspond you you tell the story because you know what I'm I'm getting to I love this story
1: well uh, the Howe brothers Admiral Howe and General Howe hoped for an accommodation and they sent a, a representative a delegate one of their officers in to meet with General Washington and he arrived with a letter from General Howe addressed to George Washington Esquire and uh the uh, people at the at the door said there is no George Washington, Esquire. We have General Washington, and would not receive the letter because it wasn't properly addressed. Well, you see, if if they addressed it as General Washington, that would be recognizing that he is the commander of a real army and he has real rank and should therefore, by other officers of the 18th century, be so properly addressed. Well, they kept coming back with different. Different uh, addresses it would be George, Washington, Esquire, etc., etc.,
0: etc., etc., that's the one I love. And yeah. Washington uh, refused to pick the letter up. That's as if to say, like, whoever it is that you are yes, or think that exactly. you are. I love that part, yeah.
1: And they wanted to to negotiate <laughs> with Washington, but they would not, could not bring themselves to call him General Washington, and therefore there was no negotiation.
0: Now, there finally does come a meeting, but but Washington, as I recall, just lets the letter sit, doesn't yes. touch it. Yes. Like it's poison.
1: Yes, John Adams once said that George Washington was the greatest actor of his age, and this was this was one of the great scenes in the in the career and life of George Washington because they're all around him, and Of course, you must remember that they they know that the British officers have all the etiquette of such situations down pat and they've been trained to do this right and here's this raw provincial in command of the a ragtag rabble in arms as the as the British contemptuously referred to us and and he is showing them as well as his own junior officers that he knows exactly how to play this game and he's playing it to the hilt and people who were there would never forget that scene never forget that moment of how their commander put these brits uh, in in their place by out outperforming them
0: would you would you finish our time together and tell me your own story about the inevitable day when you decide, I think I'd like to make a go of this as a writer full-time. I'm sure that there was a financial risk that had you troubled, but I, 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 tell that story.
1: Well, I um, had, had uh, some success with my first book about the Johnstown Flood, the famous disaster here in Pennsylvania in uh, 1889, and I was working full-time in New York as an editor and writer for a publisher, and I, I really wanted to write. And I wanted to write books. I wanted to go on my own. And we had uh, four children, a fifth on the way. And this was uh, a brave um, and uh, some would have said irresponsible idea I had in my head. But because I am married to such a wonderful partner, my wife, Rosalie McCullough, she had the courage to say, yes, let's do it. Let's try. And I was I was eager to get to work on my second book, which was about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, and I knew that it was a terrific story and one I was just compelled to tell. And uh, so we we cut cut the cord, we cut loose, and it was um, it was hard going for quite a while. I don't want to make it sound as though we were suffering, but uh, we were living uh, as, uh, as modestly as we possibly could. I was making almost nothing and it took a long time it it took uh, i've been at this for 40 years and it's only been really since the truman book that uh, we've had um, sort of the sense that we are economically uh, secure
0: well we're all uh, we're and, all better off for you having taken that Well lunch. thank you
1: i i think i'm the luckiest guy in the world and i thought so even before my books began to uh, reach a larger audience i do exactly what i want to do every single day i can't wait to get to work and I've been able to raise a large family, educate them, feed them. And uh, it's been a very fulfilling life. What's next? I'm thinking about it. Okay. I feel a little
0: right now. Well, that's the important I part feel, of the I feel a
1: little uh, like uh, Joseph Hodgkins, the uh, Ipswich uh, shoemaker who was in the war, one of my favorite characters. He wrote to his beloved wife, Sarah, and he said, if I come out of this alive, I think I might like to rest for a
0: spell. And I <laughs> Hey David, don't I rest. Have, don't I rest for little. don't rest for too long. All right. You're the man. By the way, look around. We normally only afford this status to rock stars. So thank you very, very much oh, for being here. Of you. I really, very really appreciate that you came in. It's been delightful. All right. The great David McCullough, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, 1776. What great fun. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app.
1: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.